how great is that song? How catchy is that song? I am willing to bet it is the first time our guest this morning has ever been introduced with that song. That's from Swamp Thing, the animated series from 30 years ago, which I was a big fan of. And I don't think I've seen the show in 30 years, but sometimes that catchy theme, uh, which obviously is a takeoff on Wild Thing, is still in my head, and I still find myself singing the lyrics 30 years later. The reason it is such a unique song to introduce our next guest is because Michael Uslan is a film producer who has produced each of the Batman movies, and he's the author of the new book, Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, Land of Bilk and Money. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I'm a big fan of yours and certainly a big Batman fan. Vice versa, Frank. Great to be with you. Now, um, I love your story of how you brought back Batman to movie screens, and I'm sure you're tired of telling it, but I'm going to ask you to tell it again, so get ready. But before we get there, tell folks how you fell in love with Batman as a character. How were you first exposed to the Batman story, and what about his story and this character resonated with you so much as a young person? Well, easily, when I was about seven, eight years old, I discovered this superhero that was different from Superman and the Hulk and all these other guys because he had no superpowers. I contended always that his greatest superpower was his humanity. And my God, did I, did I identify with him in my heart of hearts when I was eight? I really believed if I studied hard, worked out real hard, and if my pop bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. And um, so it was that identification, number one. Number two is he has the greatest rogues gallery of supervillains in history, inarguably the greatest with the Joker. And as Stan Lee once told me, he said, Michael, the greatest, most long-lasting superheroes are the ones with the greatest supervillains because ultimately it's the supervillains who define the superheroes. Um, plus, he had the most primal, gut-wrenching origin story of watching his parents slaughtered when he was a kid in the street. And finally, it was the magic of the car. And, and those things added up, and that was it for me. I became the boy who loved Batman. Were you first exposed to Batman in the comics, in the serials, or in the 1960s TV show with Adam West? Absolutely the comic books. I was a comic book fiend. I w I'm a fanboy. I'm a comic book geek. Um, my mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four. <laughs> By the time I turned 18, I had a collection of over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936 that filled my parents' entire garage. Wow. And I went to the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth in a Fleabag Hotel downtown New York when I was 13. And I, I was just comic book geek all the way. Uh, love it. Now, what was your take on the 1960s television show? Certainly, it was a lot different from many aspects of the comic and the subsequent cinematic versions of Batman, which you obviously had a hand in crafting. I couldn't wait for months for the show to come on the air. I was so excited. The night, it was a cold night, January 66. I'm in my downstairs den. The show comes on, and I am simultaneously thrilled and then horrified by what I'm seeing. Because while the car was cool, it was in color, the sets were extravagant, um, it hit me about 20 minutes in, oh my God, this is a comedy. They're, uh, they're making a joke out of Batman. They are laughing at my Batman, and that just killed me. 
So that night in our downstairs band, I made a vow, uh, like young Bruce Wayne once made a vow, except he did his over the bloody bodies of his parents. My parents were up, were safe upstairs in the kitchen. And, and I vowed that somehow, some way, I would show the world the true Batman, the creature of the night created in 1939 by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, the one who stalked these deeply disturbed criminals and try to find a way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three new words, pow, zap, and wham. So you were not, once you had seen the series, you were not an addict. You were not obsessed with uh, Adam West and Burt Ward. You didn't appreciate the campy charm of it. I did not at all. I was a serious comic book fanatic. I had met Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman. He told me how how it was created and why. And that it was meant to be dark. It was meant to be grim. And um, I I just wanted to honor the creators and the creator's vision. Well, uh, and I think you've done that in spades. Now, Batman has got to be one of the most successful movie franchises in history. I mean, I I think maybe aside from James Bond, I, I can't think of something that's a more commercially bankable venture these days. It's difficult for folks to imagine in the early to mid 80s. Batman was fa- was considered far from a sure thing in terms of bankability at the box office. In a nutshell, I know you've written now two books where you go through this story, and I want to encourage folks to get them, and especially the latest one, Batman's Batman. Can you explain to folks your efforts to bring Batman back, how you went about doing it, and how you ultimately were successful? Yeah, I can, and you got it's hard to understand this story unless you put it in the context of its time frame. Um, I was a kid in my 20s when I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics. Now, today... For for how much? For how much? A whole bunch. Okay, okay. (laughs) I had to raise money privately. I had six months to do it. And on October 3rd, 1979, uh, signed the contract, acquired the rights to Batman, went out to Hollywood, figuring, okay, there's going to be a slam dunk with Batman in my back pocket, they'll all see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games. And I was turned down by every single studio, every single mini major in Hollywood. They told me it was the worst idea they ever heard. They said, Michael, you're nuts. You can't make dark superheroes. You can't make serious comic book movies. You can't make a movie out of an old TV series. That's never been done. So as a result of that, Frank, as that kid in my 20s, from the time we bought the rights to Batman until our first movie finally got made, 10 years. Wow. 10 years of rejection, and it was like a human endurance contest. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, and that's one of the things that you chronicle in your book, Batman's Batman, uh, the some of the tools that you need uh, to get to under, to deal with the wherewithal and the rigors of the process of making a major motion picture. We're going to touch upon some of them. Uh, One of the first chapters in the book, one of the first P's that you talk about, and the book focuses on the 12 P's, is an aspect that I think can really help people in any profession, and I certainly know if it's true trying to carve out a radio career. You talked about, or the 13 P's of producing, not 12, I didn't mean to diminish one, but you, you, uh, you focus on the passion to work 10 years on a project that no one seems to want. You really do need a great deal of passion. Don't you? It is imperative. 
and you cannot possibly do it without it. And that's why, you know, every year I go back and I teach three weeks at Indiana University's media school uh, courses on the business of producing motion pictures. And I explain this to the students. Matt, when you've got a passion coursing through your veins, it's virtually burning you. Um, To be able to follow that passion, get up off the damn couch, be proactive, don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. Don't have some misguided sense of entitlement that the world owes you something or is going to come to you. you got to get up and make it happen. And the only way you're going to do it is, number one, you better have a high threshold for frustration. Because doors, I promise every, everyone in my college class, doors are going to slam in your face. Promise you. When they do, I learned you only have two choices. You go home and cry about it, or you go back and knock again and knock again and knock again. The Batman movie franchise was built on my bloody knuckles. And my inspiration for this was my dad. My dad was a stonemason. My father had to drop out of school in Bayonne, New Jersey when he was 16 to help his family survive the Depression. He worked six days a week till he was 80, got up before dawn every day. Uh, It didn't matter if it was snowing or 95-degree New Jersey humidity. He kept going. (laughs) But my father loved what he did. He was an old-world artist, a craftsman and made these beautiful fireplaces and homes out of brick and marble and stone and cement. And when you grow up in a house like that and you see someone getting up with a smile on his face every day and can't wait to get to work, how could you not want that for yourself? And and that was my dad was my inspiration for the passion. Uh, One of the other chapters that I think most people don't necessarily think about when they think of successful Hollywood producers like you that I found really interesting is the prayer. And you asked the question before answering it, how do you inculcate faith, commitment, and perseverance in a person? How do you do that? I'm sure there are people listening to us right now that might be experiencing some professional adversity, some uh, some personal adversity. When all seems lost, how do you drive yourself to keep going just through strength of will and power of faith? Well, Part of it is I was lucky enough to have parents who my mom and dad sacrificed everything for me and my brother. Even though they had a geeky, weird little son, (laughs) they catered to my special needs, uh, my interests as well. Um, They gave us a great education. And my mom was the one who taught us, you know, once you make a commitment, it's a matter of honor. And you, you follow that commitment. You see it through to the end. Yes, there may be pain involved, but it is your duty. It is your honor at stake, and you see it through. So that was our background when we were growing up. And um, my partner, Ben Melnicker, who was my dad's age and was a legend in the movie business, starting with MGM in late 1939, he was an incredible man. Ben said to me one day, he said, Michael, um, when things are at their worst, when the world is crashing down on your head, when your project is, seems to be crumbling, what you need to do is say, this is the best thing that could happen to me because, and then fill in the blank. And I have used that, Frank, ever since. I've taught my kids to use it, and it works like a charm. Well, it's certainly good advice, not only to folks wanting to get into Hollywood, but for folks in any profession. So um, that 1989 Michael Keaton film with Jack Nicholson, and it's uh, just terrific. Kim Basinger, a wonderful cast, but it's a wonderfully made film. 
How did it ultimately get made if no studio wanted to make it? How did you convince Warner Brothers to take, take a chance on that? The answer lies in a young genius named Tim Burton. This young man came into our lives circa 1986 uh, as a Disney animator. And uh, he had done uh, Beetlejuice, and then they showed me the final cut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I said, I've never seen a more creative marriage of production design and direction in my life. Uh, I had three lunches with Tim. I was sure this was the right guy, and it was. He figured it out, Frank. He had the big idea. When I say big idea, this was a revolutionary breakthrough idea that would change the course of Hollywood and movie history. He said, if we are going to do the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie, and we want the entire world that has never read a comic book to take this seriously and suspend their disbelief, Michael, this movie cannot be about Batman. I go, oh, my God, what is this crazy man saying? He said, this movie must be about Bruce Wayne. And if we can show a Bruce Wayne so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic, then audiences will suspend their disbelief and say, okay, that's a guy who would get dressed up in a bat costume and fight a guy like the Joker. And he was absolutely right. Look at the Marvel movies. Look at Iron Man. Those really shouldn't be entitled Iron Man. They should really be entitled Tony Stark. Right. The, the Spider-Man movie should really be entitled Peter Parker. That's all the genius of Tim Burton, whose corollary to that was the essential need for world building and that Gotham City had to be the third most important character in the movie from the opening frames. Because if audiences didn't believe in Gotham City, they would never then believe in a Batman or a Joker. Needless to say, if you didn't care for the campiness of the 1960s program, I'm sure you weren't crazy about the 1940s little Batman serials that, that aired before films, were you? Well, I got to tell you, everything in its time, uh, at the time the Batman TV series was about to come on the air, they re-released the original 1943 movie serial for six and a half hours. It was showing at a theater in New York, and me and my friend Bobby, uh, my parents let us take the bus up, and we sat through six and a half hours of that 43 <laughs> Batman movie. Um, and and uh, about halfway through, the cringing really started uh, but, you know, they were working on no budget, right. and um, we kind of understood everything in its time. And, and, and there is, I find something still charming about it, and uh, I, thought it was e- I thought it was interesting. If you, I know I'm not a, a, exactly asking an objective source here, but uh, perhaps I'm asking the best possible person. If you were to pick, of all the actors who played Batman, who would you say pulled it off the best who's your favorite batman actor well first can i tell you who my favorite child is <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you um actually the it's a, it's i claim it's the wrong question the, the correct question is who's your favorite bruce wayne because the bruce waynes are what is a hundred percent different mm. every time a new actor comes in we could not have achieved my dream come true, Batman 89, the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie, if it wasn't for Michael Keaton, being able to pull off that Tim Burton thing about showing a driven, obsessed Bruce Wayne that audiences would believe could become this guy. In the same regard, um, when you look at the work of another genius named Christopher Nolan and the performance he crafted with, Christopher, with Christian Bale, 
to try to convince audiences that Bruce Wayne could be real today. He could be a real young man today suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome on a lost horizon journey of self-discovery. And I think Christian Bale nails it for every generation. But then if you look at today's movie, we've got The Batman by uh, another genius named Matt Reeves. You've got a Robert Pattinson playing a young Bruce Wayne who's kind of just been starting out. And he has a long way to go to evolve before he becomes the Dark Knight. And at this moment, Bruce Wayne is pretty much lost among his thirst for vengeance uh, to atone for the murder of his parents. It is a fascinating psychological uh, look at a very young Batman who's still making mistakes, still tripping over his own feet, but is one of the world's greatest detectives. If you were to pick the Batman picture that most closely adhered to the story in the comic book, what would you say that film is? Not necessarily the best or your favorite, but the one that was the best reflection of the Batman of the comic book. Well, understand this. The comic book has changed over the decades, Mm. and we've seen interpretations of Batman from one extreme to the other. When I was a little kid, it was the adventures of Batman as a baby, Bat Baby, Bat Genie, Bat Robot, Super Batman, um, Alien Batman. Uh, But then later on, he returned to his original 1939 darker roots uh, as a masked manhunter. Um, Later on, he became so dark it was almost vampiric when Frank Miller did the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel uh, in 1986. It transformed the entire industry. So I look at the different movies, Frank, as reflecting different eras of Batman in the comic books. So to me, Batman 1989 best reflected the Batman of Mm. 1939 to early 1940. Um, The second movie, Batman Returns, was more the darker Batman of the 1990s comic books. Um, After that, I would say it was more, well, the George Clooney thing was a return to the campy uh, pow zap wham, um, fuzzy boy next door kind of Bruce Wayne. Uh, Enough said about that. And um, but you were I, I mean, it sounds like that doesn't necessarily hold the same place in your heart that some of the other films do. Uh, you were a, a producer on that film as well, though, right? That version of uh, Batman and Robin, not Batman. I was, executive, yeah, Batman Robin. I, I was executive producer on that movie. True. Um, I did not like the fact that they were taking it back as almost an homage to the 66 TV series. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was catering too much to licensing and toys and Happy Meals. And, um, uh, again, that was one of the times Ben said to me, this is the best thing that can happen to me because, and I had to say, well, because somebody's going to get bitten on the tuchus a little bit from this, and the next time around we're going to get a really great dark and serious Batman movie, and the next one up was Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight trilogy. So it was worth whatever pain came with that. I haven't seen the new film yet, uh, but I've heard great things about it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's not for lack of enthusiasm. It's, you know, having a four-month-old, uh, having the uh, the two hours uh, to sit in one sitting and watch the film, that has become uh, a, a little bit of a fleeting thing. How happy are you with this new film with Robert Pattinson? It sounds like you're pretty enthusiastic about it. I'm somewhere north of ecstatic. Um, finally, I've been waiting. I've been uh, telling the studio since 1989, we've got to show everybody Batman is the world's greatest detective. Now we got it 33 years later, um, and it was worth the wait. 
what Matt Reeves has crafted here with an amazing, perfect cast uh, and storyline is, um, it, well, is a movie whose it's a crime noir. It's a crime noir drama. And the cinema antecedents for this movie is not a former Batman movie or Marvel movie. The antecedents in cinema for this movie is Silence of the Lamb, um, Seven, The Usual Suspects, Chinatown, The French Connection. This is a complete redefinition of what a comic book movie, what a superhero movie can be. And, um, my God, it is just wonderful. And anyone who's a true fan of Batman is recognizing that. Wonderful. Uh, well, that's, that's great. Continued, uh, continued success with that film. Now, uh, is it, you know, can you understand how some fans might get frustrated, not just with the Batman series, but they've done this with Spider-Man as well, where they keep retelling the origin story of Batman? I mean, um, we've seen the origin story now re re created several times in a couple of different ways why not just make a continue the existing story rather than go back to the beginning again and show the origin story here here and that's what uh, matt reeves has done in the batman there is no batman origin story retelling there is no origin story of any of the villains in here everybody's out already and everybody's been operational um, but let me tell you something. Every single time you see Robert Pattinson and you see Robert Pattinson's eyes as Bruce Wayne, Batman, um, the origin story pervades this whole thing. You know it's haunting him. You know he's emotionally disturbed by what happened to him as a kid. And that's without having to see it all over again. And that's one of the great successes of this film. Plus, you know, the villains, they are still, with one exception, they're still pretty young. And their own personas are still evolving. So over the course of, of time, I think you're going to see a, a, an amazing evolution of the good guys, the bad guys, and maybe even the Batmobile. Oh, uh, very, very interesting. That's quite a tease. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Michael Uslan. His new book is Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, land of bilk and honey. I learned in this book that you carry around a photograph of Peter Lorre in your wallet. I, I love Peter Lorre, <laughs> but tell folks why you carry around a picture of Peter Lorre, and can you do a little bit of a Peter Lorre impersonation for us? Uh, that will cost you extra. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> however the this is a story that was told to me. So everybody, I am retelling a story that was told. I am not verifying the facts in this, only that this is the story I was told. And it was told to me by one of the children of one of the stars of Casablanca. Uh, and, of course, Peter Lorre was one of the stars of that movie as well. So I was told that Peter's daughter back in the 70s was a hippie. Um, she was coming back uh, in L.A. on, I think it was the 405, late, very late one night from a party. And all of a sudden, she sees behind her the whirling red lights on an unmarked police car. And she gets pulled over in a very isolated part of the freeway. Uh, there's like one lamppost nearby, but it's pretty dark with the hill going up in, uh, along the side. Uh, one cop in uniform gets out. She sees there's another one in the car. He says registration and license. She hands him her wallet and open to her license. And he said, step out of the car. So she gets out of the car. He says, I can't read this here. And he goes around to the uh, hillside 
And he says, step around to this side of the car. So she goes around to the side off the highway. And he's looking at her wallet at her driver's license. And he goes, why do you have a picture of Peter Lorre next to your driver's license? And she said, well, he was my, he was my dad. He goes, what? She goes, yeah, I'm Catherine Lorre and Peter Lorre is my father. He goes, really? She goes, yeah. And he looked at her and he said, Peter Lorre was my favorite actor of all time. And he folds up the wallet and he hands it to her. He says, get out of here right now. <laughs> and with that, she gets in her car and she drives off, thinking that that's the end of it. What, but the punchline of the story is that many, many, many months later, it turned out she was brought in to testify at the trial of the Hillside Serial Strangler. And she was the only one he ever let go and one of the only ones who could identify him. Wow. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, we should all carry a photo of Peter Lorre. That is absolutely incredible. I, we're almost out of time. In fact, we're a little bit past the allotted time. But two quick questions I want to ask you, and I do hope you'll come back because I'd love to spend an hour with you talking about movies, talking about your philosophy on life, because I think this is already going to be a better radio show for me having read the 13 Ps that you outline in your book. I'm wondering how the foreign box office has changed uh, Hollywood movie making these days. I'm getting, I'm guessing that when you made the 1989 uh, version of Batman, there was not a lot of concern about uh, distribution in places like India and China, whereas I know now the studios make a lot of their money uh, with distribution in those places. How has that changed the films that you're making and the stories that you seek to make? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, first of all, I remember back in 89, we couldn't figure out why our box office wasn't bigger in places like Japan and France. It, it turned out they did not have Batman comics. They were, they were not familiar with the character. But over the years of the movie franchise, uh, everybody in virtually every country now is familiar with, with the franchise. So the foreign box office has, in effect, picked up uh, over the years. And then with China opening, you know, sadly, at this point in time, they've closed over 50 percent of their theaters due to COVID restrictions. Uh, so there is a limited return um, in China at the moment. But it, it really has changed. And one of the good things I think that's coming out of the globalization of, uh, of movies is a move to make content that is culturally sensitive to the point where it can play everywhere or almost everywhere. How great to be able to, to craft a story and characters that will be received well in China, um, in India, in South America, uh, as, as well as in North America. And instead of just making movies for North American boys who play video games that have lots of explosions mm. and lots of special effects. So I think ultimately it's, it's a very positive thing. I have to ask you about your experience on Swamp Thing. I loved Swamp Thing, and you all were played a role in Swamp Thing. Um, I found that to be a really wonderful film. I enjoyed it immensely. How, what did that mean? What sort of a game changer was that for your career? It was a complete game changer. I had never produced a movie before. I was still in my 20s. I got thrown into the deep end of a pool and told, the right, learn how to swim now. Um, and, and that was the situation. Thank God I was working with a man who became one of my dear friends, Wes Craven, uh, a phenomenal filmmaker, a great human being who wrote and directed it. 
I miss him dearly. Uh, Wes would go on to do create Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. Um, we had Adrian Barbeau, who was one of the nicest, most professional people you'd ever want to work with, ever. She would come back later and do the voice of Catwoman in some of the Batman cartoons. And one of the classics of the golden age of cinema, Louis Jordan uh, from Gigi and uh, so many great movies. And it was a learning experience for me, Frank. Um, I, I was thrown in and had to figure it all out as I went along. So we had $1.9 million uh, actually to make the movie, which I learned, later learned we should have had $19 million. Um, and I detail some of the problems and some of the craziness that we encountered on that. Uh, but the fire burn scene remains what is considered one of the best fire gag stunt scenes in cinema. I, I mean, I uh, I can absolutely see that being the case. Yeah, and by the way, uh, do we have your permission to play that song that we played at the beginning of the segment? Does that sound <laughs> it, it, it makes my heart sing. It makes everything groovy. Uh, Michael Uslan, uh, final question I promise now is, why do you still work so hard? I know a lot of us can relate to... Uh, producers who struggle to get a dream movie made, to see it come to fruition. The movies you've made have probably made billions of dollars at the box office. I think a lot of us that don't know very much about making motion pictures sort of think that once you get to that level, you can just sort of coast and just sit by the pool all day. You say that you're still working 12, 13 hours a day. Why? What are you doing? It goes back to exactly the question you opened this discussion with, passion. I love what I do. Like my dad loved what he did. Um, my, my brother's an optometrist in Ann Arbor. And on Friday nights, he gets to close the office at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And he doesn't think about work until 9 a.m. on a Monday. I never stop thinking about work. It's with me all the time. Um, it, it, it keeps me passionate. It keeps, I feel it keeps me young. And so many of my friends and relatives have retired now. I, I wouldn't even dream of it. Right now, I'm working on my first ever Broadway show. I am so far out of my comfort zone, it's not even funny. But to push yourself out of your comfort zone, to reinvent yourself periodically, and to take on new challenges and, and rely on people who have experience in areas that you don't, couldn't be more exciting. But they are turning my books. The Boy Love Batman and Batman's Batman into a Broadway show. Outstanding. And I couldn't be more excited. Uh, you got to let us know and keep us posted on that. I definitely want to have you back uh, to promote it. I can't wait to see it. Michael Uslan, thanks so much for the time this morning. I enjoyed it immensely. I, I can't wait to do it again. Thanks so much, Frank. It's a pleasure being on WA Beetle C. <laughs> we'll have to send that one to Cousin Brucey. If you want to comment, uh, actually, we're not going to have very much time next, but uh, we'll, we will do 15 seconds of fame. If you want to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, now's the time. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.